Journalist, playwright, and actor Graham Isidore stays off stage writing a story based on some of his vice colleagues who report on the alt right and who have received death threats for their work. The show White Heat tells the story of a woman who receives these death threats uh, from an alt right podcaster who she eventually discovers is a high school student. I hope we didn't give away too much about um, the show. No, no. Uh, that, that's basically the setup for the thing. It's also the setup from uh, a couple months ago when I sent the publicist the email and began writing it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the show has evolved a little bit. So actually, the the we had started with a high school student uh, being the alt-right podcaster who ends up now being a single dad. Uh, mm. So he's a little bit older. So we're taking a look at um, who are the people behind these comments? Who are the people who are sending the emails and the hateful stuff that comes to These anonymous faces that pop up in your Twitter feed and everywhere yeah. else, right? And well, it might start off with something, uh, you know, seemingly benign or relatively, uh, you know, unspecific at the beginning. I feel like it's all on a spectrum right now, uh, kind of leading towards uh, a bigger cultural movement towards the right. And so it's kind of taking a look, the show is kind of taking a look at, um, you know, how innocuous internet comments can turn to real violence and how it's all sort of a joke until you know, of course it isn't. Yeah, it's, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. So uh, is it based on like one specific thing? I guess now you were, you've been playing with the characters a little bit over the last couple of months, but yeah, what, so, what exactly was the inspiration for it? Uh, White Heat is a work of creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, there's a bunch of real life events that this was sort of molded off of, uh, you know, for doing like the movie voice thing. It's like yeah, yeah. based on true events <laughs> type thing that come, comes together. Um, but yeah, there's there's two colleagues specifically who, uh, you know, are, are people I've really admired at Vice for a long time. Uh, one being Kim Kelly, who was at Vice and was the um, metal editor for Noisy for a long time, uh, who has been really involved with anarchist circles for years. A lot of the work at Teen Vogue that's happened over the last couple of years that's been more political charged. And um, and, and has changed. I mean, like Teen Vogue, you would not necessarily have looked to years ago yeah. uh, to be a, a, a strong and influential voice yeah. in terms of Me Too and lots of other things. Uh, it has become a leading outlet for that sort of thing. It is. And so Kim was one of the voices behind that. Um, she's no longer with Vice, but was freelancing at Teague Vogue and writing a, a number of really uh, politically charged and very interesting and very uh, informative columns over there. Uh, the blowback for that for her has been extremely... Um, Extremely extreme, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so because she is writing about such charged topics and has been very vocal in anarchist movements, people immediately have associated with her with Antifa, um, which for alt-right groups, you know, is the boogeyman, yeah, is yeah. Uh, the, the the worst possible thing, is the people who are causing violence. So uh, there was an article that had come out earlier this year that had associated with her with Antifa, and then she ended up uh, on a list that was called a sunshine list by a bunch of, you Nazis on a uh, message board called Stormfront. So, yeah, the the reality is that for some of my colleagues for doing the job and doing the job extremely well, that it's put their lives at danger. Um, they're actual plot of this show is based a lot off of the work of Mac Lamoureux, who is a, a you know dear friend of mine and I think one of the best writers in Canada. He's covered the alt-right extensively uh, for Vice Canada. Uh, that's 
bled over to um, the states as well, but has written uh, a number of very, very big articles taking a look at the rise of the alt-right here. So because of that, his life has been changed pretty dramatically. Uh, I think the work that he's done is extremely important. He's one of the smartest people I know uh, and is one of the reasons why there's a number of um, white supremacist groups who are now considered terrorist groups uh, by the Canadian government. I think that's, um, you know, uh, directly or indirectly, Max had a big, big part of making that happen. But the consequences that that's meant for him on a personal level has meant doxing, has meant uh, vitriolic comments coming all of the time towards him, uh, and has meant, you know, a lot of, um, uh, I don't want to speak to a turn for him, but has meant a lot of uh, just, you know, personal um, uh, plights. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an easy thing to to have that kind of uh, vitriol thrown at you on the regular. Well, I and, think what happens is it wears you down over time. I think the point of this bombarding people with, you know, vitriolic comments and, and terrible things is that, you know, at first you can blow them off. At first, maybe the first few are upset and then you go, okay, there's so many of them uh, a day later. And then a week later when they're still coming in, it does start to wear you down. And when the threats start coming. That's well, where it gets terrifying. Yeah, and it's also kind of like I experienced this uh, on a very small level. Nothing uh, at all um, that my colleagues have, have taken. Right. Uh, I mean, like, uh, especially anybody who is a PFC or a minority, uh, you know, it, it's tenfold for them. But I do experience it as well. And I started thinking about kind of like, um, you know, uh, when we take a look at the Capitol Gazette shootings that happened in Maryland uh, last year, mm. um you know, how real is this stuff, right? Yeah. And I was just like, and I always just kind of brush it off. And then, you know, if a person threats to, threatens to beat me up or a person, you know, makes fun of the way I look or whatever, it's sort of a little bit of par for the course with, you know, what our job is. But I started thinking about why. Like, why is that acceptable? Uh, yeah. What other um, position are, are you threatened on the regular, you know? And, and why is this just a byproduct of trying to do the work I do? And even the culture work I do kind of gets this blowback. So, you know, again, I'm talking about the spectrum and talking about kind of like how one thing leads to another is really what was fascinating to me about writing this piece. Um, there's a line that I've been using that I, I just said to my director who was immediately like, this needs to be in the play, um, is that if I do my job really well, somebody tells me I kill myself for a week. Right. You know, uh, that's how I know that I, I've done something that's, you know, reached a critical audience or, or that's reached a bigger than my normal circles because I'm getting a lot of hateful comments. And like, that doesn't matter. I could write, uh, you know, one of my biggest early pieces was going to Mandarin Chinese buffet and <laughs> trying to eat 10 plates of food. And that ended up with people being like, bro. You got to kill yourself. You know, it was just like you, you haven't you didn't really eat the 10 plates. You can't lie like that. And right. it was just like, really, that's going to be the commentary towards these things. It does not matter what you say or do now. Mm-hmm. You're you're going to flick someone's switch. Yeah. yeah. And like and it's also an interesting thing that I am kind of aware that that's a little bit a part of my job, too, where mm-hmm. it was just like, you know, vice built itself on, on flipping switches. So, um I get that for me when I'm pushing buttons or or knowing that I'm going to do it that, okay, I can accept a little bit of that. But it's different when the commentary changes from, um, you know, like, you're an idiot, I didn't like what you wrote to, um, 
you know, uh, we're wishing bodily harm on you. Mm-hmm. And do you know, occasionally when you're writing these things, these these pieces for Vice, I mean, you said the Mandarin one, that sounds just like a, a fun, mm-hmm. you know, flippant little piece where you go and you write and it's a lifestyle thing, I guess, and a slice of life. Uh, <laughs> I but, suppose buffet eating yeah, is lifestyle, yeah. But, but, uh, but at some point, you know, everyone's been to a buffet at some mm-hmm. point. So, you know, you can kind of relate to it on some level and it's an outrageous thing to do, eat 10 plates of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start getting blowback from it. You probably, you didn't expect that one, but when, you know, you do write something that you know is going to be, uh, uh, controversial, uh, is there ever a hesitation with you? Um, no, uh, no, but it's changed a little bit recently. Uh, I'm more conscious of it than I ever have been. Yeah. And I'm more conscious of it than I ever have been because of what's been happening with my friends. So, I mean, I wrote an article uh, a couple of weeks ago about trying to find the worst bar in Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, was like, that. that's my hometown. It's yep. where I grew up. I think it's a terrible place. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll go on record of saying such. But I knew that, you know, there were some people from my hometown who were probably going to be a little bit angry about mm-hmm. uh, the commentary of that. Uh, I didn't expect, a, you know, a bar owner to come and be like, fight me. You know, or if you step foot in this town again, we're going to mess you up or like whatever else. Like, it's a little much, man. You know, Um, it doesn't give me pause, but it does. um, The only times I'm really uh, aware or a little bit nervous about it is when it starts affecting other people in my life. So, uh, you know, when I'm explaining that to my dear mother, who I love a lot, you know, who still lives in Niagara Falls, I was just like, I'm not worried for her safety or anything like that. But I know that trying to be honest about that aspect of my work had an impact on her. Like, you know, you heard the pause in the voice of going, oh, yeah. people are, you know, it was just like, oh, you know. And that's an interesting thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, that uh, that this has impact beyond just kind of my own life. Um, and again, like, just to tie it back into these plays and tie it back into the themes of, of White Heat, it's just like that is such a tiny fraction of what, um, you know, my colleagues get. Uh, but if you look at like, you know, uh, they got rid of the comment section on, uh, on vice proper, but there's still the comment section on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Or if you look at Twitter, it's just like, why is it acceptable for, for people to make, you know, the extreme comments that kind of come for these things? By getting rid of the comment section, I was all for it at first because Toronto Sun, I mm-hmm. think has done it. A number of places have, have done it. And then I thought, you know what, I don't know, maybe it's better just to, to shine a light, like let these people uh, to know who they are, if they're going to, if they're going to post terrible things, even though it's anonymous, but to know it's out there might be better than not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a weird balance with these things and people often bring up the fact that, you know, I can be pretty critical in my writing sometimes. Uh, I'm, I know you kind of have to be when you're yep. reviewing stuff or when you're uh, uh, trying to speak honestly. But um, the difference is, is like, I use my name, yeah. you know? Like, I was just like, and uh, again, like, I'm never hesitant to be able to have conversations about things that I actually wrote um, or comments that I've made or, you know, opinions that I have. That's, you know, par for the course. And that's uh, all stuff that's up for grabs for mm-hmm. sure when you start uh, – making attacks about sort of like physical appearance or when you start instead of talking about like this is why I don't like what you wrote being like um you know we're gonna you should die yeah (laughs) like you know and 
it's strange because again, like when I tr- have explained this to a lot of people, it was just like, wow, it's just the internet. It's just the internet. But like, man, my job is the internet. Like that's where I, I grew up. That's where I live. That's that's like, uh, it's how I make my living. It's just like I'm I'm on there constantly. So and it if, should be a safer space than it is. You mentioned coming uh, from Niagara Falls that you were born and raised in Niagara Falls. And I love a line here from your uh, article about it where you say, it's a city designed for people who don't live there. Tell me what it's like to to grow up in this place that I always think of as being Clifton Hill and really not much else. Yeah, uh, I've been talking about Niagara Falls a lot recently (laughs) to the uh, chagrin of a lot of people in Niagara Falls. Uh, It's a strange place to be from. Uh, uh, I think a lot of people equate it to Vegas really easily. Uh, the falls themselves are, are legitimately one of the most breathtaking, beautiful things that you can experience. You know, it's the Grand Canyon with water. It's majestic. It's something that I could spend a lot of time just contemplating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but around the falls is this cancerous tumor of the, the, the industry that, you know, everybody makes their money on. It's the tourist industry. It's yep. the glitz and glamour. It's, um, you know, a, a strange place in so much as, like, we don't have adequate public transportation there, but we do have, like, a Super Mario-themed go-kart racing track, right? So it was just, like, how does something like that happen, and how do we take something that's such a, a, a natural beauty and then turn it into this, like, neon lights, cotton candy, sugary, um place like that? And I think it, it like, the juxtaposition between those two things just kind of gave me a headache growing up. Mm-hmm. It was such a strange, like, interesting uh, uh, place to be because, like, my first jobs um, were in the tourist industry, uh, like, st- uh, sweeping the streets of Clifton Hill, which is, like, the main Yeah, yeah, the main drag where they have, yeah. uh, I don't know if it's still there, but, the, like, the Houdini Museum, the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, and all that stuff lining yeah. both sides yeah. of the street. Um, Frankenstein's monster eating a hamburger, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, on top of the Burger King. And, like, if you want to figure out why uh, I don't like my hometown. Perhaps spend eight hours at a time with a tiny broom and tiny dustpan, picking up small pieces of trash uh, right. from from people who tell you that you missed a spot repeatedly. Right. Um, so that's kind of where I learned my uh, my my little um, anger for for my hometown there. But yeah, I've been writing a lot about it recently because I've just been kind of fascinated with that. Uh, you know. Um, uh, Going back, like I spent yeah. a little bit more time there recently than I than I had previously. Um, just visiting with my mom and visiting with some grandparents uh, down there, trying to get the time in uh, while I still can. Yeah. Um, and so, kind of being back in the city and and then thinking about it, uh, you know, now compared to my teenage years has been really interesting. I would think that it would be odd to live in a place that is so transient. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I assume that there are, you know, and, and this is just complete ignorance on my part. I've never lived in a, in a tourist town like that. But, you know, I assume there's little neighborhoods. You have friends. There's neighbors. It's all, you know, it's, it's, it could be fairly normal, except that you are centered around a business that is all about getting them in and getting them out. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, like, I, I do think that there are... You know, for for all the hatred that I have towards that place, there are some really cool things about it. Like uh, people, if uh, they're ever there exploring the Niagara Gorge, is great and free. Uh, It's some of the nicest hiking down, and there's white water that you can get down to pretty quickly. You know, uh, some of the more, um, like the the parkways are really beautiful. There's some great walks and hikes and biking down there. But, again, that's not what people experience mm-hmm. of Niagara Falls. They experience, you know, one of two casinos. They experience the animatronic Brendan Fraser. You know, they experience uh, one of our, our three different wax museums, right? And it's just like, 
I don't understand why people want those things. And I, I was just like, I wish that I was a person who could buy into the kitschy fun yeah. of, of all of these things. But, you know, I decided to be a miserable black T-shirt wearing uh, <laughs> punk rock listening dude uh, at a very young age. I made a face in the wind and stuck that way. And so I can't just enjoy those things <laughs> like, like other people can, I think. But, yeah, I mean, like there's there's – uh, there's little people within the art scenes there that, uh, you know, have worked – little people is yeah. not what I meant. But, like, there's people within the art scenes there who have worked very hard to um, uh, make a life for themselves yeah. and uh, have made it uh, really their devotion to make um, little pockets for themselves in Niagara that, that really embrace kind of the culture and the stuff that they love. So, uh, you know, there's some cool breweries that have popped up in the last little while. Uh, the winery stuff has always kind of been there, but there's also been some, you know uh, – people booking shows again, which mm-hmm. is great, and concerts. Um, you know, and, like, it's uh, it's interesting because I think that there was a big community for that when I was in my teens, and then the entirety of that community moved to Toronto right. when they hit 20. Um, I'm speaking with Graham Isidore. Uh, he is a journalist, a playwright, uh, a storyteller. Uh, we're talking about Niagara Falls. I sometimes wonder uh, if coming from... A place that you're kind of rebelling against uh, isn't the best thing for uh, creating art, or is I guess is the best thing for creating because you want to get out. It 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 makes you it pushes you. I think when you're surrounded by stuff that you don't really understand to explore a little bit. Yeah, I think it's again like I grew up in in punk rock communities a lot of the time, and like if you don't hate your hometown as a punk rocker. I think you'd lose your your credibility right. pretty quickly. That's right. You know, but it's it's the juxtaposition I think between um you know I'm also a big fan of Springsteen, so it's like that <laughs> like the love for his hometown versus uh you know all the other musicians I love to to hate their hometown. But I think that like a lot of creativity can just come against like um you know when in your youth you're always trying to define yourself by opposition, right? <laughs> and I think it's just kind of like I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, and by doing that enough you start to kind of figure out what you are. So I think Niagara really gave me, um, uh, you know, it was a place to leave. And a place to leave uh, was a lot of fuel and a a lot of stuff to really get motivated to be able to kind of do other things. Mm -hmm. I pretty quickly knew that I wanted to be in a big city. Um, You know, I started coming into Toronto, uh, taking the $12 Greyhound round trip, uh, (laughs) you know, skipping classes and and going – to hang out on Queen Street to yeah, try yeah. to like soak up some semblance of cool by osmosis, right? Like, uh, so it was just like, again, kind of like going in and hanging out with, um, you know, in front of the Much Music building yep. and, and, and going and uh, standing in front of George Strombolopoulos while he, he taped the punk show, you know, and like figuring out who the the webmaster was at muchmusic.com who could then get me into maybe be, uh, you know, stand there while they talked to my favorite bands. Like, right. All of that stuff, uh, all was kind of fueled by the fact that it was just like I wanted something bigger for myself. And you do a lot of first-person journalism, things, stories that are are, are are generated by you. And I thought, you know, this is in the tradition of, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, of Tom Wolfe, of Joan Didion, and that kind of thing. What what was it for you uh, that that pushed you towards this? Um, Pretty simply, Henry Rollins. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I read Get in the Van um, when I was about 14, and it, it blew my mind a little bit and introduced me to a bunch of my literary heroes, kind of, that he was reading at the time, too. But the idea that you could, um, that the documentation of your life could be a piece of art in and of itself, and I know that sounds grandiose and mm-hmm. pretentious, but 
I'm kind of a grandiose and pretentious person. <laughs> um, but yeah, like watching uh, or reading Rollins, being able to kind of be able to do his thing. And after digging through that book, finding a bunch of his other writing, uh, but really his... Um, he calls them talking shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people might think that those are stand-up. Other people might see it kind of as storytelling as that's become more in vogue as a term. Uh, but the talking shows that Rollins does, talking about his experiences, um, you know, going across th- through the country in Black Flag when he was uh, quite a bit younger. Uh, but now, uh, you know, as a, an older man uh, just traveling the world, trying to get himself into hairy and interesting situations constantly, uh, was really kind of an eye-opener for me. Uh, so, you know, in so many aspects of my life, I think like a lot of people, I've tried to emulate him. Mm-hmm. But he became the jumping-off point for things, uh, you know, a little bit later as I kind of reached my early 20s. Bourdain became uh, a, a yep. big... Um, person for me uh, and reading Kitchen Confidential well, you know, working as a busboy again was kind of was like, oh, <laughs> this also can be, you know, um, fodder for, and material for, for how you're living. And there's kind of an interesting thing of thinking about the artistry of, of everyday life. Um, so a lot of that stuff was just kind of like, you know, play acting and trying to emulate those people as best as I can. Uh, as I got involved in theater um, in my early 20s, too, uh, there was a performer named Spalding Gray who yeah. became very big for me. Yeah. Um, mostly because, uh, you know, when I would go into playwriting class with my angry, uh, you know, poorly written, angsty monologues, someone was kind of like, okay, I sort of see what you're getting at here. There was a playwriting teacher named Janet Sears who. Uh, is a Governor General's award-winning playwright and a pretty amazing uh, woman who was kind of like just pointed me in that direction a little bit more and being like, okay, what are the literary aspects that can kind of come out of this? So, you know, who are the people who have kind of done this very well? So she had introduced me to Spalding Gray, who, you know, I, I consumed everything he had done pretty sat, quickly. Yeah, sat behind a desk and told stories like swimming to Cambodia mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, they really are beautifully crafted uh, pieces of storytelling that can last an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah, and then that can be art and that mm-hmm. can be theater. Uh, it was a big eye-opener, too. So it was just kind of like it's, you know, it's banging my head against the wall trying to tell people I'm important for long enough until someone goes, um, well, maybe, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but it, it's... A lot of the stunt journalism that I've done has been a jumping-off point to talk about uh, larger issues or ideas that I have. Well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm speaking with Graham Isidore. He is a journalist, a playwright, and an actor. Uh, written lots of stuff for Vice, GQ, lots of other uh, places like that. The Vice stuff is particularly interesting to me because it's first person, a lot of it. And the thing that that connects, I think, your inspiration, Spalding Gray, uh, Henry Rollins, and and uh, and uh, Anthony Bourdain, is that in each of these cases, you have these kind of outsider figures um, who have such great empathy in the way that they write about things and people, and a, a genuine curiosity about uh, what goes on in the world around them, no matter kind of how simple. The story can be they they find the the interesting core of a story so it doesn't have to be about a famous person it doesn't have to be about um, a big event we can find the the interest and the and the and the and the humanity uh, in the everyday stuff that happens mm-hmm. and I think it's just kind of was like you know it's trying to express it was just like what. Empathy becomes a thread kind of throughout it. And what are the commonalities between these things? I think a lot of the reason I write is because I don't often feel understood. So right. I was trying to be able to, um, you know, articulate that for myself and for other people with the hopes that I'm like, okay, well, if I can get this down, maybe 
that's a little bit more clear. Um, a really interesting part of that, you know, which is is admittedly a little navel gazy, is becoming um, aware of of how other people respond to it. Mm-hmm. So it's only something that's kind of happened in the last little years, uh, but it's. Um, how people have kind of reached out and been like, oh, you know, there's similar situations that I've found or, or whenever you're talking specifically about kind of mental health issues or you're talking about uh, kind of the existential quandaries that that we all sort of deal with, um, you know, being able to be like, okay, well, that's that's other people too is great, you yeah. know. Uh, and it's just the ability to kind of feel um, – God, I can't believe I'm saying this. To feel a little less alone. Um, I know. know, It's it's the biggest cliche probably ever. But, I mean, I think it is important, though. Yeah, and I think it's just like, to be honest, the cliches are always the truth. A lot of the time are the truest things there are. It's just like they exist, um, you know, uh, we say them over and over again because we feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cliches are cliches because they're true mm-hmm. most often or, or, or a great deal of the time. So uh, your first experiences with theater came through your grandfather. Yeah, so uh, my <laughs> I'm glad you dug that up. Um, my, my grandfather, uh, uh, God bless him, um, basically I, I think he – there was vaudeville kind of in our, our lineage oh, yeah? way back. So I think his grandfather was like a vaudeville actor around – and grandpa just enjoyed stories more than kind of anybody else yeah, yeah. did. So I think my earliest memories were like watching him in like community theater productions where, um, you know, he would just kind of like uh, the, the funniest thing in the world to him was dressing up as, as a lady and kind of like the, the Monty Python <laughs> right. school yeah, of, yeah. Of, uh, of comedy. So, you know, putting on a terrible British accent and then putting on a fake brassiere was, <laughs> was uh the height of Benny Hill comedy yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grandpa's uh, <laughs> favorite pastime, which thinking about it, you know, uh, is, uh, is very interesting for him. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was just like, I remember his community theater productions that would kind of go up and they'd get uh, people from the church and people around to just kind of put up these um, these stories, uh, you know, at fire halls and in, in back rooms. Mm-hmm. And, like, to me, that was the height of show business. Yeah. I was just like, oh, man, that's how Grandpa makes his living. I'm going to be an entertainer. Just like uh, you know, my dad's dad up there. I, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, it's also pretty punk rock just to put on shows wherever you can, <laughs> in back rooms, and you know. <laughs> the 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 thing that they don't often you know tell you at punk rock school is that like the the commonalities between that and the little church kids is yeah. not that different either. Yeah. Uh, it was just like the, the the kind of like we're gonna do it anyways DIY and being able to do it ourselves. Uh, like the community aspect that kind of plays into those things, and the community aspect is really why I stuck around in this community like this mm-hmm. uh this whole paradigm for as long as I have um you know kind of goes throughout theater though any um uh as I've learned uh, punk rock people are pretty averse to, to theater in general <laughs> it's been a hard sell to try to get some of my mohawked uh, wearing friends to, yeah. uh, to my little shows but yeah uh, uh just seeing grandpa like that that was the uh I want to be a I want to be in showbiz like my grandfather uh, how conscious are you as you live your everyday life that Things that are happening around you could end up being a story or could be the germ of of a play or or a piece for vice uh it's 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 my burden and my curse uh, yeah, it's yeah. constantly it's, you have to be turning out content um pretty much continually to make a living being able to do this stuff so you know I write sort of between five and eight articles a week in addition oh week oh 
A month. A uh, month, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, if I had a staff job, um, if anyone wants to give me a staff job, I'd be happy to write uh, five to eight articles a week. No, five to eight a month, but those are long-form pieces, too. Yep. So, um, you know, there's a lot of time just uh, uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that way, I think, in so much as uh, sometimes I'm wondering if I'm doing things specifically to try to get content right. and other times that's uh, caused havoc in my personal life uh, because um, I have written about uh, my personal experiences uh, that have also involved other people right. um, and that, that's caused uh, some conflict kind of as well. There um, has to be a line, I suppose, because as a journalist, you have to be true to the story, mm -hmm. but as a person writing about yourself and your own experiences, you have to be cognizant that it will affect other people. Well, it's always interesting. Uh, like, I mean, I've only really recently started calling myself a journalist at all. I think of myself as a writer, um, and I think that there's a distinction between those things in mm -hmm. so much as, like, the journalists I know, uh, you know, are great at reporting and... Yeah. Um, asking questions. Asking questions and digging down and finding information, and I'm... Uh, I'm a pretty good talker. I, you know, I'm decently writing. I'm decent at writing about my own experiences. Like how I call myself a good talker, and then yeah, immediately decently. stumbled on my words. <laughs> decently, uh, repeat the same words all the thing. I talk pretty one day. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, uh, I don't think of myself as a journalist, kind of in the same sense of, of that stuff. But I do think of myself as a writer, and you know, trying to be honest with your work. Um, can get you in trouble because, you know, uh, there was a Mike Barbiglia line I love where he says, if you're not telling secrets, who cares? Right. And, like, it's stuck with me for a very, very long time because I think that's true. But that's a little dangerous sometimes. Yeah, Barbiglia is interesting to me because, you know, he, he looks like this all-American kind of kid almost. I mean, you know, he's young-looking and he's sort of, you know, effervescent. Uh, and yet when you see him perform live or if you see uh, his movie about sleepwalking, I mean, mm -hmm. it, these are these are movies that reveal a great deal or, or and, and work that reveals a great deal about him. But I think that's the authenticity that people want and, 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 and crave these days. Authenticity is an interesting word around this stuff, too, because it was just like, it's curated, right? Like, right. I, like people talk about vulnerability within my writing a lot. Um, and yeah, I do reveal a lot about myself, and I'm, I'm willing to kind of talk about my feelings and emotions towards those things, but you're never seeing anything that I didn't choose to put there. Right. Right? So it's just like, it's, um, I make that choice, right? And uh Again, when it starts affecting other people, that's where it can get a little bit hairy. But uh, I don't have a problem talking about the things that I, you know, if I put it out in an essay, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to have it out there. And the idea of like what is authentic within the context of that is interesting too, because it was just like, sure, yeah, I'm a vulnerable, uh, you know, guy. Uh, people have talked a little bit about you know concepts of being edgy is something gets thrown at me a lot, but it's all just a play acting thing that I've tried to cultivate anyways. It's like it's a pose. Well, do you find, and I'm in conversation with Graham Isidore, uh, writer, playwright, actor, uh, do you find that you feel the need to top yourself as you go on? You've been doing these pieces for some time now. Do you find, uh, you know, do your editors say, uh, we got we to gotta kick this up a little bit? Uh, my editor, my main editor is a guy named Josh Fisher who has been... Um, extremely kind to me and mm -hmm. has never really pushed me uh you know has pushed me within the context of stories for yeah, yeah. sure um i'm being trying to find kind of like 
you know, how can we be more honest to what really makes you tick? Can we get a little bit more resonance there or whatnot? But it has never pushed me to do um, an article that I didn't want to do. Most of the stuff that I'm generating, I I bring to him. Um, And so there is, I'm I'm very cognizant of trying to top myself constantly. Uh, It's that uh, I did a piece where I tried to get abs in 80 days uh, (laughs) that that got away uh, from me a little bit in a cool way. And, like, I, I knew that, like, even as I was doing it, I was just like, I knew that the photos that we had taken that were specifically designed to make me look terrible and that make me look as good as possible right. afterwards were going to be, you know, a clickbaity headline. And, and I, I had a feeling it was going to do pretty well, but I didn't know it was going to do that well. Um, I don't know the exact numbers on that, but I also know that, you know, every three weeks Vice reposts the the article and I gets pops and get ups again and I am you know, have a number of comments from whoever else and it gets a couple thousand, you know, likes or whatever. So that's the biggest article that I've ever done and I'm fully aware that I want to do something bigger than that next time. Uh, I don't want to do another crash diet. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I don't think doing it again will kind of reach uh, the same amount of people that it did the first time. But I am kind of looking for different things um, where... I can try to do something that's going to be bigger than that. How do you live like Joe Rogan for a week? That was an interesting yeah. one for sure, too, because Rogan's an interesting character. Yeah. I I, um, I have all of my lefty friends think that he's a meathead and doesn't have anything good to say. All of my um, people who are more a little bit on the right uh, thinks that he's a little bit left wing, you know, <laughs> and that he's a little bit too open for those people. Right. Uh, but what was interesting to me about that was like um, – I think that Rogan is a type of masculinity that I, you know, coming from a theater background and coming from like, uh, you know, the arty side of, you know, the the Velvet Underground side of punk rock, um, didn't really have access to that type of masculinity a lot of the time growing up. But I love listening to Rogan, as do a lot of people. Uh, And it's kind of that sort of like a little bit, uh, you know, that that hyper-masculine energy was a different... um, an interesting place to kind of like capture and live in. Uh, I did that when I was pretty young. Mm. I think I would love to, I think doing it now would be way more interesting to me. Um, just, uh, you know, as his career has evolved. And, uh, and now there's more talk of toxic masculinity versus, yeah. you know, uh, because there is, I, I think, a difference between toxic masculinity and just uber masculinity. Yeah. And I also think that the ability for, um, uh, you know, embracing aspects of my masculinity that I tried away from for whatever reason when I was younger has been super good for me. Finding a good gym, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, taking a couple of jujitsu classes, um, you know, uh, finding ways to be able to express uh, you know, things that are like inherently manly without it turning into like an Axe body spray commercial <laughs> has been awesome, you know, uh, and has been really, really good for me. Um, and I think that being able to find positive role models within that, again, going back to people like Bourdain or going mm-hmm. back to people like, you know, Henry Rollins, who are people who are inherently pretty manly dudes. But, um, you know, I don't think ever fall into that spectrum of, of kind of a, a bunch of things that I, I probably shouldn't say on the radio. Yeah, yeah. I'm in conversation with Graham Isidore, uh, writer, playwright. Uh, look him up on Vice. Uh, you can find him all over the place. Uh, in terms of, of writing really interesting uh, first-person uh, accounts of his life and the lives of others, how often you interview just interesting people, and there's a number of, I, I thought, really fascinating Q&As. How do you uh, find people? Or if you're just in conversation with someone, are you like, you, sir, are interesting? Uh, a little bit. It's a little bit that. I mean, like, it's uh, like any um, 
journalist, I'm pitched pretty continually. Yeah. But I also have been very fortunate to run in, in pretty artistic circles for a little bit while. So, um, you know, I grew up going to uh, going to concerts constantly, and the way that I got into any journalism was by interviewing bands when I was right. little. Uh, so the first, you know, one of the first interviews I ever did was Alexis on Fire because I grew up in Niagara Falls. Right. They're from St. Catharines. Uh, you know, I think I talked to them when I was 14. Um, <laughs> so you've always known you want to be a storyteller. Yeah. Yes. It's sort of been the thing that I've had to do for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the only things that really made sense to me. Uh, one of the only things that I was good at and actually liked doing. So it, it kind of went through there. But yeah, I was like, so a lot of it just became like when, you know, um, when you grow up in those communities, you get to know different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been very lucky to meet a lot of my idols in music that way. Uh, more recently, it was just, it's been really interesting to kind of think about like, what is the responsibility and what is the, um, uh, I guess the power, for lack of a better word, of the voice that I have yeah. with this, uh, you know, between CBC Arts and between Vice, it's stuff that gets read. So mm-hmm. it's been trying to take a look at like, how can we tell stories of people who might um, not have those avenues themselves yet? You know, and how can we put them at the forefront? Uh, I interviewed a uh, performer who goes by Gay Jesus, uh, Heath Salazar, who was one of my favorite people that I've talked to in the last little while, about kind of um, them retaking their uh, Christian values uh, in a trans um, performance art way, which was super fascinating. Uh, I met them through, you know, some mutual friends and seen them perform once. Um, You know, we had talked to... uh, um, genderqueer lingerie model ran and call it uh, a little bit earlier about their story and trying to figure out how they're doing um you know what's the intersection of uh if you don't believe in gender but performing femininity kind of in this this um uh, very overt way mm-hmm. um and so it was just like it's people that i've seen around people who you know are our mutual friends if you hang out in these circles there's there's always somebody interesting to talk to I've been in conversation with uh, Graham Isidore. That went fast. Uh, that, uh, that's our time. We're, we're out of time here. Uh, you can find his work at cbcarts.ca? Uh, yep, that's there, and uh, at vice.com. At vice.com. And, and check it out. Interesting uh, pieces of work that, you know, I, I think um, display a, a great deal of insight, a great deal of empathy, um, and, and, you know, it's always important to have uh, a wide variety of voices represented out there in the world, and, and you're doing a lot of that work for everybody else. So uh, thank you for coming in. My thanks to Robert on the board and you at home for listening. We'll talk again next week.